So our focus today as we come to this ninth chapter is going to be on the last two verses of the chapter, verses 20 and 21. Um, and we'll get there in just a second. But just to remind you that on Wednesday evening for our midweek study, we are making our way through the book of Revelation chapter by chapter. And uh, this past week, we did chapter six and seven. And this coming Wednesday night, we're going to be uh, covering chapters 8 through 10. So we've just picked up the pace just slightly here and we'll slow it, slow it down again uh, the following week as we get into chapters 11, 12, and 13. But we'll pick it up and those are the chapters that we're going to be covering on Wednesday night. So uh, come on out and join us for that. Now, as we look at these two verses, as we zero in on verses 20 and 21, let me just read them to you again. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which could neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Um, I, I've entitled the message, as you can see, the hopeless, humanity's hopeless condition. And, and this passage that we're reading here is just a reminder of how that is the case with man. Uh, these verses have always astounded me. Every time I read them, I come away amazed at the depth of human depravity. And, and I don't think there's, there's been a time, at least in the last several years, that I haven't read through the book of Revelation and, and stopped at this point and just sort of sat in amazement at how it could possibly be that under these kinds of conditions that people would still refuse to repent, that they would, uh, you know, when, when everything is just completely obvious to them that, you know, this is God's judgment on the earth, that they would still persist in their rebellion against God. But that's exactly what it is that we are reading about here. Now, as I think about this, I think about our tendency to think of those who don't believe in Christ as either people who are, they, they don't believe because of ignorance, they don't, they don't know, or uh, they don't believe because uh, we, we sometimes think, well, there's, you know, it's a, it's a misrepresentation of the gospel. They've never really seen a, um, you know, a true, accurate uh, picture of who Christ is, and, and therefore they're rejecting. My point is that we're, most of the time we're reluctant to ad admit that there are people who the issue is not that they're ignorant. The issue is not that there's been a misrepresentation. The issue is really that in the heart of, of every person, there is an aggressive rebellion against the rule of God. And that is what we see here. And in the book of Revelation, like I pointed out before, so many of the things that scripture teaches all the way through are confirmed in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that the scripture teaches from cover to cover, from 
Genesis to Revelation is just this idea of the depravity of man. The depravity of man, meaning that man is hopelessly lost in sin, and unless God intervenes to save, man will continue in rebellion against God and, and go to destruction. That's really the, the essence of the teaching of the Bible on the condition of man. Now, in the world of philosophy and religion, there are only two views on man's natural condition. There are only two views. The most dominant and popular view is the view that man is essentially good. That when you clear away all the rubble and you you know, get through all the, the junk and the, the darkness and all of that. If you dig down deep enough, you're gonna find that in the heart of every person, there's, uh, there's a, t a touch of goodness. That is the dominant and it's the popular view and it is the view of every single religion in the world and it's the view of every philosophy in the world there's only one opposing view to it, and that's the biblical view. You see, the biblical view is that man at his core, when you dig down deep, what you're gonna find is evil. The deeper you go, the darker things become. That's the biblical picture, that our nature is twisted and perverted through sin, this is what the Bible teaches. And if you understand that, that will help you to understand why there is such hostility to the Bible in the culture. That's why there's such hostility to the message of Jesus. That's why you can find so often that people are willing and ready to accommodate almost every other religion and almost any imaginable philosophy, but they will not tolerate the biblical message, because it just goes completely against the grain of what we tend to think about ourselves. Now, just to show you real quickly that uh, the, the biblical view from Genesis to Revelation is one of human depravity, let me read to you a few verses. Starting in Genesis, going back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and then just uh, another portion of... Uh, chapter 8, verse 21, it says this. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then 821 says, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So this is going all the way back to the beginning. This is at the time of Noah. So here we have it stated in Genesis. We fast forward to the days of the prophet Jeremiah and Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or incurably sick. And then the question was, who can know it? And the idea there is that no one can know. We can't, we can't even know the depth of our own depravity. We would never imagine that we are as evil as we potentially are. God is the one who had to reveal that to us. But then we go forward from Jeremiah and we come to Jesus himself. And Jesus said 
in the Gospels, and I'm gonna read from Mark 7, 21 through 23. Jesus said, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil lie, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within. So you see, this is the, this is the picture that the Bible paints of man. Uh, some years ago, Malcolm Muggridge, the well-known uh, British, um, he, was, he was an author, he was a journalist, uh, he said this, ha- having come from a position of sort of atheistic, agnostic, Uh, background coming to a position of faith in Christ, this is what he said. He said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. How true that statement is. It's it's obvious. We, We don't have to look we don't have to look far. We just look in the mirror. And we know from experience that our proclivity is toward evil. That's just the, the bent of human nature. But even though it's, it's so obvious, even though it's all around us, there is this fierce denial of it. There is this constant pushback uh, coming against this. And so as we come to the passage that we're considering here today, we see here in these verses, we see further evidence of this fact. This this is what the, the passage is communicating to us, is that everything God has always said about man is true. And here's just another example of it. Now, the example of it is seen in their refusal to repent even though it's completely clear and obvious that God is the one who's bringing these judgments. And remember too, let me just set the stage for you. Uh, We picked up in verse 13 of of, uh, chapter nine, but let me give you kind of the the things that preceded it. So we're reading, the the events that we're reading about here, uh, judgment has fallen on the world and we've now come to the sixth trumpet. So remember, there were seven seals that were opened up first, and then after that came the seven trumpets. And so now here we are, uh, we picked up reading at the sixth trumpet. But prior to this, in the judgments, there's a third of the vegetation that's been destroyed on the earth. There's a third of the sea uh, has become like blood. A third of the fresh water supply has been contaminated. A third of the sun, moon, and stars have been darkened. The bottomless pit has been opened up and locust-like demonic creatures have been let loose to torment those who dwell on the earth. And another third of the world's population has been destroyed. So that's the context for this. All of that is going on. It's clear. Everybody on earth is, is understanding at this point that the God of heaven, the maker of all things, is bringing about his judgment. Now, there are people who are responding in the right way because we know from an earlier passage 
that there are multitudes of people that come out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, they've, they've come to faith in Christ. But there's still this majority of people in the world that are resisting the gospel. They're resisting God's call to repentance. And as I look at this, it's like the world uh, collectively is now uh, manifesting the same kind of behavior that we saw historically in Pharaoh, the Egyptian king at the time of Moses. If you go back to the book of Exodus and you read the story of the Exodus and how God uh, sends Moses to Egypt and he uh, commands uh, through Moses, he commands Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to obey him. And then God begins to show Pharaoh who he is. And on 10 different occasions, God gives Pharaoh an opportunity to repent. God begins to pour out his judgment. And then after each one of the judgments, Pharaoh has the opportunity to, you know, throw up his hands and say, okay, you're God, I'm not. And uh, I'm going to submit myself to you. But all the way to the very end, all the way to his very own destruction, Pharaoh resists. He hardens his heart over and over and over and over again. And that's pretty much what we see happening here with this uh, group of people that are being described. Now, I, I want to just walk through the list of things that they would not repent of. There's specific sins are spoken of here that they would not repent of. And so notice again what it says in verse 20, that they did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should worship demons and idols of gold, silver, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So no doubt these weren't the only sins that people were engaging in, but the, the author here, he zeroes in on these particular sins. And what I wanna do is I wanna go back to something I said previously in, in a previous message, actually, where we talked about how, although these things are future, and although by the grace of God, the church will not be in the world at the time, even though they're future, we can expect a, a conditioning to take place in the world in preparation for this time that's coming. And every one of these things that are highlighted, the, the worship of demons, the idolatry, the murder, the sorcery, the, the sexual immorality, and the theft, all of these things are, are, are beginning to rise to, to a new level, even in our world today. And now, I think during the, the period of time that we're looking at here, during the tribulation period, it, it's going to go, obviously, to, a, to a, a heightened level. But we see that things are are already moving in that direction. But let's just, like I said, let's walk through each of them. First of all, the worship of demons. Now, when we think of the worship of demons, I think most of us would probably think, well, man, I don't know who does that, but I, I don't do anything like that. You would be astounded at how much 
demon worship there is that is going on all around the world today and, and even in our own culture. Now, of course, a lot of people don't completely understand that that's what they're doing, but that is exactly what they're doing. I was reading the uh, story of uh, the life uh, testimony of a, of a friend of mine, a guy I just met, he gave me, his, um, gave me his little biography and it's a great book. And he was raised in Cuba as a Roman Catholic and yet his family was involved in what's called Santeria. Some of you know what that is. Well, Santeria is really, kind of, it's a combination of Catholicism and demon worship. Now, of course, they don't talk so much about the demon part of it, but that's actually what's taking place as they uh, seek to connect with, with the saints and with the dead and, and so forth. And they, they engage in putting curses on people and, and all kinds of things like that. So as, I, as I'm reading through his book and he's talking about the, the activity that they were involved in in the Santeria in their own family, although they, they thought that this was just part of their, their Catholic religion, he understood clearly that they were they're trafficking with demons as they were putting curses on people and... Uh, different sorts of things, offering sacrifices and things like that. So this is, this is pre quite prevalent in the Latin world. So that's just, that's just one example, but whether it be you know, Hinduism or Buddhism or these different things, all false religion has its roots in demonic ideas. Paul tells us that in the last days, there, people are gonna depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, in the future, in the tribulation period, that's going to give way to the actual worship of the devil himself. The, the whole thing that's happening with the Antichrist is in the end, all of the people on the earth are going to pledge their allegiance to Satan. That's what it is. It tells us, we'll, we'll get to it as we move on. It tells us specifically at a certain point that they worshiped the dragon who gave power to the beast. The beast is the antichrist. The dragon is the devil. There's, there's a point when the whole world is gonna worship the devil. That, of course, is what Satan has longed for uh, the entire time. He's always wanted man to worship. He's wanted uh, man's allegiance. And, and, of course, he's been able to get it to a large degree, but he's, he's gotten it indirectly. But he longs for that day when there is just this direct uh, worship of himself, and that day is coming. And so in that context, the worship of demons would certainly probably include uh, what's coming in the worldwide worship of the devil through the Antichrist. But we see today, we see an increased interest in and attraction toward false religion. Like I said earlier, uh, the, the true faith coming through Christ and, and God's word is pushed out and it is oftentimes replaced by some other religion, which would in essence be a demonic religion. But then there's also the reference here to idolatry, to idols, the works of their hands. 
And the idols here, of course, idols and demonic worship are connected. When you go back into the ancient world, you would find in all of these various uh, cults and religious rituals, there, were, there was always uh, an idol that was part of that. And then that idol would connect you to that various deity, but also the idol connects you to a philosophy of some sort. And I think one of the things we can safely say when we're talking about idolatry today is the worshiping of the works of their hands, which is a way of talking about materialism. And in the future, in this kingdom that's coming, this short-lived uh, kingdom of the Antichrist, remember one of the emphasis, as we'll again see later, is the emphasis on buying and selling. It's going to be a, a, a crazy time of, of consumerism and materialism. And, and again, this is, the world is being conditioned for that. People are, uh, so many people are, are living for that. Their whole existence is about getting something materially that's going to satisfy them, something that they identify with, something that gives them status among their peers or whatever the case might be. So we see the world more and more going in that direction. But then we come to these other things that are mentioned. The murders, the sorceries, the sexual immorality, and the theft. Murder is on the increase all over the world. I think in the context here of, of Revelation 9, when we're talking about murder, I think we're talking about a I think we're definitely talking about a sort of an anarchy in the sense of just murder is rampant. But I also think we're talking about murder in a more like a genocidal sense. But you know, we have genocide happening all over the world today. Uh, we have populations of people that are being put to death. And we've all heard of what's happening in the Middle East. We've all heard of what's happening with ISIS. We've all heard about the fact that the Christian populations are being decimated and tens of thousands are being driven from their homes and multitudes are being murdered and so forth. And as, as horrible as that is and as bad as that is, the thing that's even more perplexing to me is how no one seems to want to address it or do anything about it or in some cases even acknowledge it. You know, there's attempts in our Congress to get our, uh, the administration to acknowledge that there is a Christian genocide happening in the Middle East, and they won't do it. They won't refer to it as that. And, and this is the kind of thing, you know, think back to, if you can remember, think back to the time of the Second World War. Think back to the Holocaust. This is the kinds of things that we're talking about that are coming in the future. But these things are happening today as well. So we're being conditioned toward that. We're being conditioned. There's a whole uh, bunch of people in various cultures who have been conditioned to think that certain people should just be eliminated. These people have no, no rights. They, they shouldn't even exist. Let's, we, let's just uh, obliterate them. And so, as I said, this is gonna be this, a dominant feature of what's happening in the future, but it's already moving in that direction. We're already being conditioned for that. 
But we don't have to go across the planet to find these kinds of things. We find that right in our own uh, communities, we see that murder is on the increase. Do you know right here in our own city of Santa Ana, in the first 55 days of the year, there were 50 shootings in this city. The highest percentage of shootings ever in the city. Now, Santa Ana has a long history and it has uh, a history of gang activity and violence and shootings and all of those things. But the, uh, the chief of police recently told one of our pastors that uh, he's never seen anything like this ever. So this is happening. So we don't have to even think of uh, somewhere like LA or Chicago or New York uh, for this kind of thing to be happening. It's happening right before our eyes. And there seems to be, in our culture today, there seems to be uh, a very lenient attitude toward murder. We see it in our, in our judicial system in many places. We just see it in the, in the culture in general. And one of the most blatant manifestations of murder that we don't talk too often about is the murder of the 60 million unborn children through abortion. And again, the thing about abortion that's so astounding is that there are large numbers of people that refuse to acknowledge that it is actually what it is. They say, well, that's, an, that's not a human being. They want to deprive the, the child in the, in the womb uh, of its humanity. And I don't know if you remember what happened a few weeks ago when the Super Bowl played and they had all of those different commercials and there was that Dorito commercial where there was a woman who was getting a sonogram and her husband came to visit her and he had a bag of Doritos and they were watching on the sonogram and the, and the, baby, in the, um, the baby in the womb was reacting to the Doritos like it you know, wanted to eat some as well. And one of the prominent um, pro-abortion groups in the country angrily responded to that and said, how dare they try to humanize a fetus? Try to humanize a fetus. Wow. So what are they saying? They're saying a fetus isn't a human. And that's how they justify abortion. That's how they justify killing children in the womb. They say it's not, it's not a human. And so it's, it's just gone crazy in our culture, as you know. The Planned Parenthood, the exposure with the, uh, the selling of the, the parts of the baby's bodies and all of that sort of thing. And, and then as you know, people speak out against it and, and question it and challenge it, there's a whole nother uh, group of people who want to silence that. You know, another thing that's on the rise all across Western culture is euthanasia. And they used to allow the, the countries that, that fought for or promoted euthanasia, it was the the opportunity to allow somebody to die with dignity, supposedly, somebody who was terminally ill, if they just you know, didn't want to go through the suffering and the, the, the um, degrading aspects of, of what happened there, then you know, they, they could ask to be euthanized. And you know, so there were laws passed that would allow for that to happen. But you know what's happened since? And you know what everybody said is this is a slippery slope. 
Do you know now that they are euthanizing people who just simply uh, feel like they're not happy with life and they can't see things getting any better, so they're just, they just wanna check out? Do you know that in some places, like in Northern Europe, they're, uh, they, the government itself is deciding whether people can really be uh, an asset to society or not. And if they can't be, then they are administering euthanasia to them. I mean, th this is happening. And right here in our state of California recently, there was a law, uh, a euthanasia law that was passed. So it's, my point is this, these kinds of things that are gonna be prevalent worldwide during the, the tribulation period, the things that people are gonna to refuse to repent for there, these are things that are beginning to surface and, and take a, a prominent place in our world already. And so you start with murder, but then you have sorcery. And sorcery, now when, you, when I say sorcery, what do you think of? You think of magic, you think of wizards, you think of that sort of a thing. Rightfully so, that's what the word refers to. But the Greek word translated sorcery is pharmakia. See if you can make that connection. When you think of pharmakia, does that sound like anything you know? Does that sound like pharmaceuticals? Does it sound like pharmacy? It, that, it, it should, because that's where we get the word from, and the word means drugs. And you think of the proliferation of drugs in the culture. And we're not talking about aspirin. We're not talking about antibiotics. We're not talking about those kinds of drugs. We're talking about hallucinogenics. We're talking about uh, recreational drugs, as people call them. We're talking about mind-altering drugs for the purpose of... Uh, you know, checking out of reality or trying to connect with the spirit world or whatever. The reason why pharmakia is translated sorcery or in some cases witchcraft is because historically there's always been a connection between these two things. In all of the occult groups throughout all of time, there, there's been this component where there's a potion, where there's uh, an herbal kind of a thing where whatever it is uh, among, you know, say the uh, Native Americans, the peyote and all of that sort of thing, there, there's a connection into that world. And so again, we see today that sorcery is on the rise in the culture and now sorcery has been commercialized and man, we're gonna make tons and tons of money and so we're gonna open up our pot dispensaries all around. And, you know, it's just a matter of time, people believe, before it's legal nationwide. We have a couple of states that have legalized pot. People say, oh, that, you know, that's the greatest thing that's ever happened. It's sorcery. And it's the kind of thing in the end that will bring down the judgment of God. And it's the kind of thing that people will uh, continue to refuse to repent of, but then there's also sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, and that word is a very broad word that includes every kind of sexual activity outside of the God-ordained sexual relationship of husband and wife, a married couple, a man and a woman. That's God's sanctioned sexual relationship. Anything and everything apart from that, uh, whether it's 
heterosexual or homosexual, it's all forbidden by God. But that is going to dominate the world. Sexual immorality is going to dominate the world in that, in that coming day, but we don't have to wait for then. It's already happening. The sexual revolution is going forth at an accelerated pace. And there is an absolute agenda. There is a movement to normalize in our culture, and not just in our culture, but to make this a universal thing, to normalize all types of sexual relationships and behaviors. As a matter of fact, the, the very idea of sexual immorality to some people is a, a completely... Um, it's, a, it's an idea that they just completely reject. There's no such thing as sexual immorality for the minds of many of the elites in our culture today. You, sex is anything you want, anytime you want, anywhere you want, any how you want, with anybody you want. That's the, that's the mentality. So to say that something is sexually immoral, that, something, that there's something that's wrong sexually, we're living in a time when that is not accepted. And as a matter of fact, if you insist that that's the case, you are not only uh, discriminated against on just a personal level, in, in some places, as we've already seen, they want to prosecute people for that. But like I said, it's not just here. You know, there, there's efforts to export this all over the world. And do you know that our government under the present administration puts pressure on countries that hold to traditional sexual values to change their position on those things? And if they refuse to comply, then there is the threat of withdrawal of support. It's like a blackmail thing that's happening all around the world. So it's the normalization of these things. That's where we are today, and then finally theft. And I think this is, this is an interesting one. Theft. You know, there, there is a mentality that is growing. And, and it's been a mentality that's been out there in, of course, the poorer nations of the world for a long time. It's the idea of social justice. It's the idea that you know, it's not fair that just a certain handful of people have all the money in the world and that, you know, that money needs to be taken and that wealth needs to be redistributed and, and all of that sort of thing. It's a, it's a form of theft, really. But it's becoming like a, a worldwide uh, perspective on the parts of people. There, there is an entitlement uh, and th there's an entitled generation in this country that says, well, I should be able to uh, have this, this person's wealth directed toward me. I shouldn't have to work or I shouldn't have to put in uh, the hours like they, maybe they did in their generation. They, they should pay my way for everything. We talked about that before, but I think theft is included in that. But just the idea of... Uh, you know, in some, in some worldviews, uh, private property is, a, is an evil idea. That's, of course, Marxism. But this, this stuff is happening. This is the world that we live in. It's becoming more and more the, the case, but it's all in preparation for where things are ultimately headed. And
the amazing thing is that people will not repent of these things. And man, today, you know, it's, if you want to step out, which we all really have to at times, but if, you, if you're going to do it, if you're going to step out and you're going you're gonna to lift your voice up against, say, abortion, or you're going to lift your uh, voice up against the sexual immorality in the culture, or you're going to speak out against the, uh, the new acceptance of, of the drug culture, if you're going to do that, you're going to get criticism, you're going to get discrimination, you're going to get pushback. Like I said, in some cases, they're going to attempt to prosecute. I mean, that's how crazy this is. There is just this entrenching of man in his sin, and this will be even more the case in the time to come. But this is what we need to remember, that people will not perish because God did not want to save them, but because they refuse to repent. That's always the problem. The problem is uh, the refusal and the rebellion on the part of man. But when I look at this whole picture, you know the thing that it says to me more than anything else? It says to me what a miracle salvation is. That anyone is saved is an absolute miracle. Because the people we're reading about here who would not repent of these things, you know what? That's us. That, that's just, that's humanity. That is the heart of man. That's the evil heart that Jesus talked about, the heart that Jeremiah referred to, the heart that God declared in Genesis. That's the heart of man. So when you think that anybody's saved, you think, wow, this is, this is a miracle. But people are not saved, not because God doesn't want them to save. We know that to be saved because we know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But it's that refusal to repent. That is what causes people to experience the judgment of God rather than the salvation of God. Now, I want to come to the application here for us, and I want to talk about the purpose of judgment for just a moment. And there's a twofold purpose of judgment. Judgment, even as we're looking at it here in Revelation chapter 9, it's implied in the text that God's desire in this time of judgment even is for people to repent. And, and John's marveling that they would not repent. So it's clear from the context that there was the opportunity to repent. That's what God was seeking to bring about through the judgment. And so we need to understand that God's first purpose in judgment is to bring people to repentance. And like I already mentioned, we know that many people will repent and many people will come to faith in Christ during that time, but we see here that the majority won't. But that's always God's desire. And even during this tribulation period, there's still an opportunity for people to come to faith. There's still that that time when, when people can turn. Now, as we go further in the book, we're gonna see that there's one thing that a person will perhaps do during that, that time that will forever seal their eternal destiny in separation from God. That's receiving the mark of the beast. And once that happens, there's no turning back for anyone. But obviously here, there's still the opportunity. There's still people that haven't done that. But when we, even when we think today, 
we need to remember that even in the midst of judgments today, because God pours out judgment today on people. He pours out judgment today sometimes on nations, but it's always with the first objective that people would turn to him. You think of the story of Jonah and the Ninevites, how God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and he gave him one message, tell the Ninevites 40 days and judgment is coming. And Jonah reluctantly went after a detour. He finally got there. He told them that, and guess what they did? They repented. And God did not then bring the judgment that he said he would bring. So we see that the first purpose in judgment is to bring people to repentance. But then ultimately for those who won't repent, judgment is to put down rebellion and to stop the proliferation and the destruction that comes through sin. So when we think of the depraved heart of men and women, when we see people's refusal to repent, and I'm talking about today, obviously, even then, let's not lose hearts because we were those people. You see, we were those people. And as long as there's still breath, as long as there's still time, there, there's still the opportunity to repent. And I say this because what can happen to us sometimes is that we write people off and we consider it to be a hopeless cause and we shouldn't do that. Now, humanity's hopeless condition is man's uh, inability to save himself, but let's not forget God can save anyone. So we will remember that more so if we remember that he saved us and we were much like the people that we're looking at today, thinking maybe God can't save them. No, he can, just like he saved us. And even if it's from these kinds of things, murder and sorcery and sexual immorality and theft and idolatry and demon worship, do you know what? Our churches are full of people who were involved in those kinds of things previously. I told the, the church earlier today, not wanting to shock anybody, but I said, you know, just for your information, we have murderers on our staff. We have people who have committed murder and they've been prosecuted for it and they've done their time in prison and they were released eventually and they gave their life to Christ and the Lord turned them around. And for years now, they've faithfully walked with Jesus and now they're disciples of Christ and they're uh, blessing people and they're leading people to Christ and they're discipling people. And we have people who were formerly sorcerers using drugs and dealing drugs and all of those things. This is the world that we all came from. And people who have been engaged in every form of perversion and sexual immorality, these are the things that God saves us out of. So we can't forget that. And you know, one of the great things about the Apostle Paul is he never forgot that about himself. And so when writing to Titus, 
he said this. He said to speak evil of no one. And, and this is my point. You know, sometimes we look at the sinners around us in the culture and our, our heart toward them is not one of, of, of hope that they can be saved, but it's one of disgust. And it's one that says, man, I just wish God would hurry up and judge them. And, you know, that's the wrong attitude. Paul says, speak evil of no man. And this is what he says. He says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Hey, we were all there at one time. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's all because of God's mercy. And so as unlikely as it might have been to some people that you would ever repent, and you did, just remember that when you think of somebody that you maybe consider to be an unlikely candidate for salvation, remember that God can save them just like he saved you. Remember that salvation for anyone is an absolute miracle, but that's what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of performing miracles. And, you know, you know, people often say today, well, you know, I don't see any miracles happen today. I can show you hundreds of miracles. I can line them up for you. I mean, there's so many uh, amazing, uh, a testimony is a miracle. The transformation of a life, the going from, from the hard rebellion resistant heart to a place of submission to Christ. And so as we close today, just remember this, it's not over till it's over. Surely this is the future. Surely there is this great judgment that's going to come, and surely there's going to be uh, the, the multitudes of people that are not going to repent. They're going to keep hardening their heart, just like there's the majority of people are going to be still doing that today. But there's always those that will repent. We just don't know who they are. And so we can't give up hope. We have to have confidence in God's love and the gospel, and that he's willing to break through. And let's keep believing that he wants to save more and more people. And yet at the same time, of course, we can't ignore the fact that, like I said, the, the whole world around us is being conditioned for these things ahead. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because that is clearly the way things are going. But even though that's the case, this is still the day of salvation. This is the time and we need to seize the moment. So Lord, we thank you for the fact that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And we thank you that there's not a single person, whether they, they've murdered or they've been involved in sorcery or demonic worship or idolatry or sexual immorality or theft or any of these things, Lord, that your blood is able to wash us clean from all of these sins. 
and how we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray today that many would turn to you. And maybe there are some today who are even experiencing the judgment of God upon their lives. Maybe that's why they came today, because they've, they've just come under uh, a judgment. And they've realized that they've offended you. Lord, I pray that you would help them to turn in faith to you, whether they're hearing this right here in this room or listening to it being broadcast. Lord, draw men and women to yourself today. Save, we pray, in Jesus' name.